God declares in Psalm 75 and verse 3, When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. How easily the kingdoms of this waking world are made to totter, to wobble precariously like a delicate vase on the edge of a mantle. But we can know this, believers. God's powerful hand steadies the supporting pillars of the universe. And the response in Psalm 75 to this reality is humility, verse 4 of Psalm 75. Humility. Well, we see a lot of tottering in our world today. Kingdoms, economies, and people displaying their vulnerability to weakness and societal dysfunction. We do not see a lot of humility, that trust in God's sovereign stabilizing power and rule. We certainly find no such humility in the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in the first three chapters of the book of Daniel. These chapters reveal a king filled with himself, filled with pride in the power and the glory of his own kingdom. Remembering King Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, his army had conquered the land of Israel. He brings back to Babylon some of the vessels of God's house and he puts those sacred vessels that speak to the holiness of the one true and living God. He takes those vessels from the house of God in Israel and he puts them in the house of his God in Babylon. Chapter 1, verse 2. This is an act of idolatrous pride, of rebellion against Yahweh. He is saying to Yahweh, to our God, I have conquered you. And material wealth is not all that Nebuchadnezzar takes home for his conquest of Israel. From that conquest, he takes home Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, the smartest, best-looking, physically vibrant young men of Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar's agenda is to rename these young men and to retrain them in the idolatrous ways of pagan Babylon. Daniel and his friends resolved to remain loyal to God and to pursue holiness in the midst of that decadent culture. And in chapter 1, we read of their great success in this endeavor, how God protects them and blesses them and how they pursue faithfulness and holiness to him even though they are learning the ways of Babylon. In chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, this powerful king, has a most unusual dream. And there follows a rather comical interaction with the, the Babylonian wise men at the king's court. The king is so certain that his dream is of supernatural origin that he refuses to reveal the content of that dream to the astrologers and the soothsayers and the magicians. He knows their deceptive ways. It's probably one of those things where he just never talked about it. Babylonian culture didn't speak of it very often, but he knew in the depths of his heart how they twisted words to make it look like they knew the future, to make it look like they could interpret mysteries. Chapter 2 and verse 9, he reveals that knowledge. Their lot is fairly active among us to this day. Those who know just how to present the situation, to make it seem like they know what's coming next. Nebuchadnezzar will have none of this. 
So he has an unusual dream. He also has a very unusual idea, and that is to be certain of the true interpretation of his dream. Nebuchadnezzar demands that the magicians and the enchanters tell him what his dream was and what his dream means. Well, they respond, King, it doesn't work like that. No one has ever made such a demand. It's impossible. And they establish through their own words, chapter 2 and verse 10, that they know this request is impossible. Tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. Which being interpreted is, we'll make up something that sounds pretty good and keeps our system going. But you cannot, king, ask us to tell you what the dream was. Your majesty, no one has ever asked such a thing of their wise men. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is an, a ruler with absolute power, and he says, kill them all. Every last one of them, they are useless to me. This was an unusual dream, and he knew they were no answer. Well, that included, of course, Daniel and his friends. They are trainees at court, and so they get roped into this execution order. But rather than panic, they pray. And God reveals Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel. And the key, as we find here in chapter 2, and verse, is verse 21, a very significant phrase, that God removes kings and he sets up kings. So Daniel stands courageously now before this king that God can move. This king, Nebuchadnezzar, who has defeated Israel, has taken whatever he wants out of the temple of God, who thinks that he is ruling with absolute power, but Daniel knows it's God who sets kings up and takes kings out. And he stands now with confidence, this young man from a conquered land in the court of the most powerful king on earth, he stands courageously before this king. And we read in verse 26, Daniel chapter 2, verse 26, the king says to Daniel, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Now, Daniel has assured his guardians who have assured Nebuchadnezzar that indeed Daniel can reveal the dream. So Nebuchadnezzar's tingling ears want to hear a resounding, yes, I can. But notice verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, no, wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. No one can do this. That's what the magicians have been saying all along, which led to their, their, the order of execution. But in verse 28, Daniel, I'm sure, fairly quickly moves to this statement. But there is a God in heaven. I cannot do this. No human being can do this. All of your wise men at court have said this, and I confirm no human being can tell you your dream. No human being can tell the future. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now, the latter days 
can be used, that phrase, of anything that is in the future to come. So the latter days is, are tomorrow and following for Nebuchadnezzar. But the latter days are also used as a technical term that speaks of the bringing to close of the story of fallen man on a cursed earth. God knows what will happen in the latter days. He knows how the story is scripted. He knows what the conclusion will be. History progresses to an appointed end, and God alone knows the script. Daniel stands before this pagan king and says, I know this God. He is my God, and I now speak for him. And so God has revealed to Daniel Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In verse 31, we find him now revealing that to King Nebuchadnezzar. He says in verse 31, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel's message makes clear that God alone can reveal the future, and obviously God is able to reveal the future because he controls the future. So Daniel reveals what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed, which assures the king that the interpretation of this dream is absolutely true. And that interpretation will now follow. But first... What is the most important feature of the dream? What do we see? We see the statue. It is impressive. It's terrifying in the, in the way that it images power. But prominence is given here to the stone that is cut out by no human hand. So I think the picture we're to gain here is to see this mountain and a massive boulder starts to shake and break loose all by itself. No human hand cutting it out of the mountain as was common for building materials in those days. But here is this massive boulder that breaks loose from this mountain and it is tumbling downhill and it crushes the statue, smashing its feet. The entire statue disappears in a moment of cataclysmic destruction. It is the source of fear. It is awesome in its presence. But this stone, cut out by no human hands, destroys the entire image, striking it at its vulnerable feet. Well, a mountain, in the Old Testament particularly, is common imagery for a kingdom. We find this in numerous references of the prophets. God's kingdom on earth with God's king on the throne is, what, is where we are 
being pointed here by Daniel as he tells this dream, where God was pointing Nebuchadnezzar and now us through that dream to consider this kingdom, this kingdom of God with God's king on the throne. Just a few observations about this prophetic dream and its content. The first that we note is that this is not a slow process, but a cataclysmic event. Now the mountain grows and it fills the earth, but the stone that struck the image filling the earth comes in a cataclysmic event. Secondly, this is not a quiet intervention that slowly builds in its significance as it overcomes the image, but it's a total destruction. And thirdly, related to this point, the mountain starts to grow after the kingdoms are destroyed. So it is not a growing mountain that eventually destroys the kingdoms, but a mountain or a stone that destroys the kingdoms and then grows. So some take the stone that grows as the church. So the stone that crushes the image is the coming of Christ and the church is the mountain that grows after the coming of Christ. But I don't think there's anything in the first coming of Jesus that parallels the definitive cataclysmic total judgment of earth's kingdoms as we see pictured here. In fact, here we are today as a kingdom of man among kingdoms of men that are still very much operating. So I think it's better to see this not as the first coming of Christ, but as the second coming of Christ and the mountain being Christ's kingdom when the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, as the prophets foretold. So Daniel foretelling the very same thing, there will be a kingdom to rule them all, a kingdom that will overcome all other kingdoms in a cataclysmic destruction that leads not to quiet intervention, but to a complete conquest that then leads to the growth of this kingdom, to its maturing and its developing in time. Well, at verse 36, God reveals to Daniel not only what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was, its content, but he also now reveals what it means. Notice this beginning at verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. We apparently, Daniel and his friends. Verse 37. You, O king... The king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. I can imagine that filled Nebuchadnezzar's chest with pride. I am gold. I am the superior metal here. I am the head of this terrifyingly powerful, regal image. Babylon, says one commentator, was the prototype of all world empires. It was the gold head. Nebuchadnezzar ruling with absolute power and with ultimately at this point, at the height of his reign, 
no serious rivals. But remember verse 21 in Daniel's prayer. God removes kings and he sets up kings. The powerful king Nebuchadnezzar, whom God had established, God could also remove. Verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. That probably was no news to Nebuchadnezzar. He did not think he'd live forever. He knew another kingdom would come, possibly. But this kingdom will be inferior. A second kingdom, after he is off the scene, the Medo-Persian Empire. In verse 39, we hear of a third kingdom, of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, the reign of Greece under Alexander the Great. And then in verse 40, we read of a fourth kingdom. There shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. They'll be united together, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. So again, a reference to the empire of Rome and a division in that empire and some confusion as to whether it is strong or weak. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not told the name of these kingdoms. They are yet future to him. He's not told who will rule them or how they would attain power. It suffices to know that God knows who they are and he will position them in the right place, in the right way, at the right time. Verse 44, Daniel continues, And in the days of those kings, let me stop us there for a moment, in the days of those kings, that is, those kings, of course, would die, they would not all be alive together at the same time. So, in the days of those kings means that the kings of these kingdoms are pictured in historical continuity as the legacy of man's kingdom that persists until the end of the age. And the image reflecting then the power and the glory of earth's kingdoms all standing together, a glorious image, not a heap of manure, something terrifying, powerful, and valuable. But as the kingdoms of history stand in regal splendor as a magnificent sculpted image, let's carry on with verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. So just as your 
dream image this. So it is the case that this kingdom that will rule all kingdoms established by God will stand forever. And verse 45, that was it broken pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. It's settled. Nebuchadnezzar does not yet know this true God, but he's coming to understand who he is. So we see in the kingdom that he will establish, God will establish it, not man. His kingdom will prove indestructible and non-transferable, unlike all earthly kingdoms. Indeed, the Medo-Persian Empire adopted, brought in the Babylonian Empire. The Greek Empire amalgamated the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Roman Empire was known to live almost as a parasite that would take in everything that it conquered, taking on the culture and the languages of the people and using that to develop more and more power. But this kingdom is indestructible. It is non-transferable. It is its own kingdom, and it will rule them all. It will destroy the very memory and the very legacy of man's kingdoms. Above all earthly powers, this stone, this kingdom, will rule forever. We read of the yet-to-our-time future fulfillment of this prophecy in the book of Revelation, chapter 11 and verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there, was a loud there, were, there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There it is. Now kingdom in the singular, one kingdom to rule them all forever. He, Christ, the king that God has chosen, will reign forever. Until, as we know, he turns the kingdom over to the Father in the eternal state. So, as we think on this amazing passage, God not only knows who will rule next, he knows who will rule last and forever. Until then, God is in the business of removing kings and setting kings up, chapter 221, and he does so with sovereign authority. The final chapter of human history in that day, God will bring every kingdom on earth to a bitter end, verse 44. And so the trials that our earth is suffering right now are just the birth pangs of the inevitable judgment and the glorious day when one eternal kingdom rules them all. And this statue then, thinking back on this statue, noticing that it's with decreasing glory and increasing power as you move gold, the highest glory, but not as strong as silver. Bronze, stronger yet, and iron, stronger yet. 
each material being inferior to that which proceeds in glory, but stronger and more powerful. Our nation today, the United States, is more powerful than all of these combined. But we have no more future than they did. It is Christ's kingdom alone that will stand forever. God has used this nation in unique ways. We have developed powers and capacities that are unimaginable from the ancient standpoint. But this nation also will not endure. Christ's kingdom alone will stand forever, and not on feet of clay, but on 12 foundations of precious stone for eternity. It is this kingdom, ultimately, that we serve. It is this king that we anticipate. It is this one kingdom which is our joy. And I think if we truly grasp the truth that's revealed to us here in this text and throughout Scripture, we will cling to that kingdom and we will hold the kingdoms of this earth loosely. We will not find our joy in the prosperities of the nation in which we enjoy so much and now inhabit. But we will find our joy in the kingdom that is to come. And, and I believe that setting our affections there, understanding what Christ will do and how all of this will be brought to an end for the glory of God, allows us to work away from the idolatries of this world, to not become obsessed with fear, to not cling to the idols of our world, to the pleasures and the securities, as if this is all that we have. We are citizens of a kingdom yet to ultimately come, a kingdom which has been inaugurated by our Savior's death and resurrection, His reign today from heaven's throne, but yet this day, the kings of this world carry on the best that they know. That by his grace, in his mercy, this day will come and will come for his people. May we look to that day and bring honor and glory to our Savior as we anticipate it. And let me give then one brief and closing word. If Christ's kingdom is not your home, if that is not your hope, if that is not where you are centered in your orientation of life, I encourage you to come to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the one who is crucified to pay the penalty for sinners. The death that we should die, he died and has given his resurrection life to his people. Trust him, come to him, knowing that he's the ultimate king before whom all will give account. What a joy it is to think of that day that we will stand in the presence of our Savior as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and bow with glad heart before him, rejoicing that we know him and that this King is our Lord, our Savior, and our friend.